everyone, and welcome to our virtual studio. I'm Megan Thomas, and I'm joined by Pamela Power, South African author of three novels, Misconception, Things Unseen, and Delilah Now Trending, and screenwriter for one of South Africa's leading soap operas, Muvango. Pam is an expert when it comes to scratching under the surface of everyday life. In fact, if you're ever caught saying something too funny or interesting in her presence, she'll start taking notes for the book. Unless, of course, you're a writer yourself, in which case she'll say sternly, write that down. Pam has a knack when it comes to storytelling and dialogue, and so it's with great pleasure that I get to chat to her today. Hi, Pam. How are you? Hey, Megan. I'm so well. Thanks for inviting me to do this. Yes, it's it's so good to have you on. Um, What I really love about your novels is how homely they are, how you read them and they just if you've grown up in Johannesburg and you're reading one of Pam's books, it's kind of like every sentence is exciting because often in Western art, you're not really exposed to people talking about home in the same way that they might talk about London or New York City. So Pam, I'm interested to know whether you find that you're purposefully making your books South Africanized, if I can use that word, or whether it just comes naturally because you're writing about your life. Well, that, I mean, that's a good question. I, I don't think I have to purposefully South Africanize stuff. You know, I love Joburg and I'm very sort of proudly South African. So I love to talk about all the places we usually go. And I like to think that Joburg becomes a character um, in my books. And I also think because a lot of authors set their stuff in Cape Town and, you know, there's always this great rivalry between Cape Town and Joburg. So I guess in my books I've wanted to show Joburg off a bit, you know, because, I mean, I live in a very beautiful area of Joburg, as as you did too. So, yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. You've captured life in Johannesburg in a way that people who aren't from there might not have known about, but without ever excluding them. Do you feel like it's your responsibility as an author to give an international audience context or is it something that just comes through naturally in your writing? It's so weird because I actually have had the criticism of, oh, this could be, you know, this could be set anywhere sort of thing. And kind of that is the point. Middle class life is middle class life. You know, we're all worried about which school our kids going to get into and are they going to make it to university and you know, the private school mums and the uh, parents' association, you know, that 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 sort of stuff, the, the kind of stuff I ridicule is really quite universal. And then, and then I like to, you know, I always try and put in that little touch of um, social realism, I suppose, my preachy bit where I'm getting on my soapbox. And, in fact, I have had editors kind of saying to me, okay, Time to get off the soapbox now. I think you've spoken enough about the HIV AIDS situation or, you know, whatever. Like, this is not super entertaining at this point. So that might come from my soapy background as well, where you are writing something very commercial and entertaining, but you're trying to get a message across as well, I guess. I don't know. Absolutely. And that that responsibility you kind of feel as an author to give people some context and teach people some things while still entertaining them. And also to, like, poke a bit of fun at 
middle-class life. You know, I, I always try and say to people, I'm not, I'm ridiculing myself because I am very much of, you know, that whole system and whatever. So if I'm pointing fingers, it's like right at myself as well. And do you find that people think you're preaching or is it more that they can accept that you're poking fun at an environment that you're already a part of? I mean, everybody has these things everywhere where you finish primary school, prep school, whatever you call it. And I remember sitting in those meetings and just thinking, because it was like, oh, I think we need a parachute like suspended from the ceiling. And it was just, you know, should we get like a race car? Because, you know, and I know this race car driver and I was thinking, like, this is a grade seven. So I started writing it there. But unfortunately, it got published when my daughter, I think, was either in grade six or grade seven. So, of course, everybody thought it was about them. And I was like, it was about the other school, not the school. And <laughs> You're so the some of them were. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, there was some, yeah, parents who were at birth. Um, and the one one of my friends actually said to me that, um, she wasn't going to read it because she did not want to see herself in that book. So that did, that did make me laugh a bit, but made me feel a bit bad as well. So I always sort of say that in interviews that it is, you know, it's very much about me as well. Also, what I find with books is you start off with something and and I really do feel that characters have a life of their own and they lead me, you know. And like sometimes, like when I was writing Things Unseen, I had a completely different murderer in mind and that murderer was like, no, I didn't do it. So it turned out to be another murderer. So that was a surprise even to me. That's that's such an exciting part of the process for you to be able to kind of let the characters themselves have a bit of autonomy in, in how they behave. I'm interested to hear the difference between writing scripts and writing novels because you, you, do you get plots that you need to follow with your screenwriting? Are you in more of a constraint there than with your novels where you can kind of write whatever it is you want to write about? Well, this is the interesting thing is that I thought it was that obviously with screenwriting, it's a very communal process and you you get a, a breakdown or a treatment, which is a sort of a, a plan of your episode. Well, first of all, let me sort of explain the whole process. So you sit down, you have these story meetings, and you all decide on a kind of a basic plot or whatever. And then that gets broken down and broken down and broken down until you've got your breakdown or your treatment. And then the treatment gets sent to the writers, and then we all write it. And then as an editor, I sort of take it all together and, you know, try and make it sound like one person's written it. So that's kind of how it's, so it's yeah, it's a very communal process. Um, and it's a lot of fun and you kind of playing off each other's creativity. Now, the thing about novels, like when you, so when you start out, obviously you've just written, you know, I basically wrote Misconception because I was appalled at being a mother and a working mother. And I was like, you know, this is, I'm so irritated by all of this. I need to write about it. So I wrote a novel about it. And that took me ages to get published. And then while that was sort of happening, then my focus shifted to um, writing Things Unseen, which is, was very different in a psychological thriller and whatever. So I had kind of started writing Things Unseen before um, Misconception got published. And then with Delilah, obviously, I was already published. And then you have to start passing it by your publisher and asking them. 
and they get to decide if they actually like that. So my publisher, so Penguin did not like Things Unseen because it was very different from Misconception. So somebody else published that. And then Delilah was kind of more in keeping with that sort of commercial women's fiction feel. So they were happy with that. Then I got a, a UK agent. And then the pr process becomes even more collaborative because I worked on that book for like eight months with the editor at my agent. So, so when, you, when you've got an agent, they get to say like what, what you are actually going to write. So in fact, this whole thing I thought of, okay, novels, I'll have more autonomy. Hate to break the news, but you have support autonomy. And I think particularly when you're writing commercial fiction, and I think where people can take heart is often things don't get published because somebody else has actually published something too similar. So it's often, it's, it, it can be disheartening, but it's often really not you. It's just the market, you know, and you've just got to keep on writing and keep on trying to get your books out there, you know. Yeah, I, I've forgotten what the original question was. What, what was that, was, that was basically the answer to it, I'm sure. Um, with the UK I, I've audience, don't be too jealous. I've had the great privilege of reading two of Pam's books that are currently unpublished, um, both set in the UK. Do you have to write differently or research more for your UK books? Well, I mean, obviously, because you've been a beta reader for me, and a beta reader is somebody who checks your work for you and makes sure that you're being authentic. So I, I did do that with both novels. But in fact, I think because I have, you know, lived in the UK, I go to the UK once a year generally. I grew up in Zimbabwe, which was very colonial on a diet of British TV. My father was Irish. So I think it's not... It's not particularly difficult for me. And also, you know, obviously our market here in South Africa is very small, which is why I decided, and I love to set my books here, but in order to reach a wider audience, I had to sort of take that leap. And I, I, I really didn't want to do it. I felt like I was being a traitor. I honestly did. Like I was going to have to hand in that South African flag if I set a book in the UK. And I also like kept questioning, you know, can I do this? Can I do this? And then... Um, a South African author who's, of course, our mutual friend, Stephen Boyke Sidley, said to me, oh, for God's sake, you, you know, you write on Mubango, which is a, a vendor soapy about a chief set in vendor, <laughs> and you're a white, half Irish person. Like, you know, how, how do you think that would be so difficult for you to set a book in the UK? And I was kind of like, hmm, that makes a lot of sense. So I think it was more an emotional thing, thinking I shouldn't be doing it, you know, but I read, I, I read so much uh, British fiction that, that yeah. And, and in fact, it was such a compliment because the one editor who didn't like, gosh, I keep forgetting the names of these books, complicit, didn't like it, um, but like my writing, um, Sam Eads. And she said to me, oh, you know, let's have a coffee and we'll talk about it. And it was so lovely because then Stephanie had to go back to him and say, well, actually, Pam's in Joburg, so we won't be having a coffee. Uh, so she thought I was actually based in the UK, and that was that was a huge compliment, I think. Absolutely, and just speaks to your writing being able to give such a sense of time and place. 
for those of you who don't know, South Africa has 11 official languages. Mavango is a vendor soap opera. Pam's writing in English. Pam, tell me a little bit more about what it's like having this multilingual environment and where you fall on the timeline of the translation process. You know, that's a great question. We don't we don't really worry too much. And probably it's because I have been on Mavango for how old Ruby? 16 years. I've been on Mavango for 16 years. So obviously when I first started out, it was you know, I mean, just the names, the names of the characters. So it's Bomo Kondeleli, Boma Cindy, um, Inchabeni. I, I, it took me forever to write the script just because the names were quite alien to me. But now they honestly feel like relatives. They really do. Um, so it's more, it's not so much the, the translation as the cultural thing. We have cultural advisors because the thing is when you first start, you make like these real clangers, which are enormously entertaining for the editor, you know. Obviously, I was a scriptwriter when I started out. Um, and, I, you know, so I put in, like, scenes like, oh, the child, and the child was running through the field chasing the butterflies, and our cultural advisor fell about laughing and went, that actually means that the child has a psychiatric illness. Okay. Yeah, so you have different sort of things like that. So you have to be very aware of it and some shows you know I write on a number of different shows so some shows they'll just take the idiom or whatever and they'll find a suitable thing in the language and others will say that is you know very Eurocentric don't use that term but you do actually get into it from watching the show and reading the other scripts and obviously because I was script editor um, for 10 years on Mubango so I got a real insight and I could just you know writers Writers are complete vultures, as you well know. So just, you know, feed off everybody else's scripts, pick up things they've got. And, you know, I learned I learned a lot through that. And then also what you've got to do is find emotional connections. So vendor people tend to be very secretive. They tend to, they'll also sort of beat around the bush quite a lot. So and they, they're tremendously sort of, so although they'll beat around the bush, like sort of about issues when they're addressing each other, so like granny addressing her grandson or whatever, she'll say, oh, that's a really ugly shirt, you know, like they will just, they, and it reminded me so much of my Irish aunties. I was like, mm, exactly like, I mean, the first time, or my grandmother, the first time my grandmother, well, it wasn't the first time, I think the second time. When I met her and she went, you know, Pamela's a very common name and that's like Irish granny. I mean, <laughs> so I, I sort of found this real connection with like, ah, oh, um, and that helped me. And I think it's that kind of hook that you've got to find. And, and obviously what I find very fascinating now is with cultural appropriation and so on and so forth. And I know writers are very concerned about, you know, how do you write the other? Because you don't just want to write about white middle-class people. I mean, that would be jolly boring. So, yeah. Given that you're writing for both your hobby and your career, does it ever feel like you're playing all the time or working all the time? Or do you find that you go into different modes when you're doing it? Obviously, like I have sort of uh, daily and weekly deadlines with the screenwriting. So, so that, you know, that's got to take priority. And then when I'm being sort of very disciplined with novel writing, and I write best when I write quickly. I'm, I mustn't mull over things 
too much and particularly getting that shitty first draft down. So I'll try and write 500 to 1,000 words a day on a novel. And, and generally speaking, so with The Sick Room, I think I wrote that first draft in about three to four months, and I need to do that. I've got to, I've got to write quickly, otherwise it's absolute rubbish. It's just rubbish. And the same with my scripts. I have to just, I've got to plunge and, and, and just do it, otherwise it's nonsense. And then it's the editing. Then, then I take a long time. And that's what I kind of realized during lockdown was that I was trying to apply the same principles to my novels as I do to my TV writing, which is, you know, sausage factory. You've got to just churn them out. That's how it works. And novels actually need time to rise. They need, they need that time. They really do. So I'm being... Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really taking time on the sick room now to, and also because it's so convoluted, um, to get it right, I think. Right. And when it comes to that shitty first draft, you talk about it quite often. Is that kind of something you'd always tell people struggling to write a novel is vital? Oh, absolutely. Because the thing is, you can, and I did it with my first book. You know, because I was doing it for my master's, I wrote two chapters and then it took me, and then I think I wrote a third chapter in four years. And then, and then eventually it was, I was 39, I was turning 40 in the August and I said, this is ridiculous. You have to finish this novel by the time you're 40. And so I'm very deadline driven. And because I did that, then I wrote the rest of the novel. But if you, if you don't do that, you will Oh, you can, you know, and you can, and also we can just bullshit ourselves, you know. Oh, I'm writing the great South African novel. It's, you know, taking me 10 years. Like, actually get it down. Get it down there. You, you, you've got to have something to edit, you know, so anyway. Mm, absolutely. You've spoken before about one-star Amazon reviews and how detrimental they can be to authors. Do you want to talk to us a little bit more about why that is? Well, it completely lowers your rating. And so so you may have like these beautiful reviews, but then you get this one-star review and suddenly you've got, you know, a three-star rating on Amazon and and people will, you know, completely bypass you and go, oh, that's, a, you know, and they might feature that as the main, you know, when that thing comes up and you see the reviews of the book and somebody goes, oh, this is trash and I'm sorry I wasted my money blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. And then if somebody doesn't have a lot of reviews, that that's it. So, I mean, I just think, I think kindness, you know, like even if you, if you don't love something, I don't think you need to trash somebody. I don't know. I'm just not really, I'm not somebody who, even like a restaurant, or whatever, I'm not going to go and trash their, you know, and, and give them a horrible review on TripAdvisor or whatever, I just probably wouldn't go back. I might mention to them, like, the meal was dreadful or whatever privately. Oh, and that is not an invitation to tell writers that you hated their book. No, no. That was a debate on Twitter recently as well. Somebody was like, oh, I think I'll just contact the writer rather and tell them how much I hate their book. And I was like, no, don't ever, ever, ever do that. We get enough criticism. We don't need to know how much you hated our book. 
And actually, once you've got to that point, the only reason you'd be giving a bad review is to help out readers. There's nothing you can do to help the author once it's published. They can't retract every copy, but you can tell people not to read it, sure. Maybe not on Amazon with one star, but yeah, it just seems... I mean, listen, I get... I have mixed feelings about it. I think I think if you're kind of Paula Hawkins and you get a one-star review, it's not going to uh, change your rating or whatever. But um, I, I just, I suppose I just don't understand why you would feel the need to go, this is absolute rubbish, blah, blah, blah. You know, some things you're going to love, some things you, you're not going to love. You, you don't have to. And, and what I do find as well, um, it used to really worry me if friends didn't love the same books I loved, but I'm so much more mature now, and I realize that we're not all going to love the same stuff. So I am loath to actually um, tell somebody not to read something or watch something or whatever because they might actually love it. You know, you can say, well, that was my reason I didn't like it or whatever, but I, I really have found that. So, yeah, so it's not really my thing, I must say. I'm now just excited to talk a little bit about the books themselves, which I love. I've, I've, clearly, I've made that clear, I hope. But first, before that, I think it'd be quite helpful for the audience to hear what I'm talking about before I ask questions. So if you are happy to read an extract, I think you've got <laughs> a saucy one ready from misconception. I think we should just set the tone saying that you actually could not read this book at school, even though it was in your school library, because you were so horrified by this piece. <laughs> okay, so let me just give a bit of background. So um, Joe's husband has come home late and drunk and with the office floozy. It's late, Nick, and Susie needs to go home. I walk to the door and open it. Thanks again, Susie, for bringing him home. Good night. Susie must have seen the way I was eyeing the corkscrew because she takes the hint and makes her way to the door. Nick looks a bit like Dom when I've taken his favourite toy away. I'm waiting for his lip to start trembling when he gets, gets up from the couch and hurls himself at Susie. Good night, Susie. Sleep tight. Mind the buggers don't bite. He hugs her tight although I'm not sure whether it's because he feels such huge passion for her or just because he needs something to hold him up. But there's no denying the passion in her face. She closes her eyes and hugs him back. You too, Nikki, you too, she murmurs. I go cold when I see the look on her face. This woman is in love with my husband and she's not exactly trying to hide it. Look after him, she says as she exits. I wish I could think of some witty put-down, but I know I'll only think of something clever to say in about a week's time when I'm doing the grocery shopping or something. Come on, Nick, time to go to bed. He starts to shake his head and mumbles something about a nightcap. I put my face close to his and tell him that I'm going to feed him crushed rat poison if he doesn't move his ass and get himself to bed right this minute. The white witch of Narnia expression on my face manages to penetrate the drunken fog surrounding his brain. And a few moments later, he hefts himself up and staggers off to the bedroom where he starts to rip his clothes off randomly. He's managed to get everything off except his socks and his shirt when he collapses on the bed and passes out. I look at his half-naked form and wonder if anything did actually happen between him and Susie tonight. I look at his shirt. There are none of the telltale signs of lipstick that one always sees in the movies. I lean towards him and sniff. But his shirt stinks so much of smoke that I can't really tell if I can smell her perfume on it or not. 
My eyes are drawn to his penis, which is lying rather drunkenly against his leg. Perhaps, I think to myself, I should be checking that for lipstick marks instead. I pick his member up gingerly between my thumb and forefinger and examine it. I try to remember what lipstick Susie was wearing. It was a slutty red, if my memory serves me correctly. I examine his penis for any traces of it. Nick, of course, thinks I'm ready for some action and grabs my arm with a surprisingly strong grip for someone who's comatose. He mutters something incoherent about knowing that I want it. You've got to be kidding me, I mutter. I wouldn't sleep with him now if I was paid in De Beers diamonds to do it. Thank you. You're cringing. <laughs> Only a little. <laughs> uh, so, um, as you said earlier, these two first chapters that you wrote of misconception were from for your masters, and then then you left it. How different is what you had in your mind for the story to what is now published? Oh, completely different, completely different. I actually, because they moved all of our research reports and everything online, they sent me the link and I read it and I was like, wow, okay, this this did really change. So I, I think it was a case of, you know, and also because I'd only written a couple of chapters. Um, so I had planned things and then, as usual, the characters had different ideas. So, yeah. Right. And then from Misconception, you were obviously then writing Things Unseen at the time. Um, and they're, qu they're quite different books. You kind of go from commercial fiction to psychological thriller, really. And what kind of, what encouraged that transition? Did you always want to write both genres or did it kind of just come naturally? I think it was just sort of my interest in what I was reading at that time. So I think before I started writing Ms. C, I'd been reading a lot of co commercial women's fiction and and that's what I, I sort of felt like writing. But of course, Ms. C has a very dark twist to it as well. So I, I don't think I could hide that, yeah, that urge to put that into books. So then then I did just feel like like writing something very different. And, and also it was kind of what was happening at that point in my life. So I had a tough time and I think, I think that's what prompted the change as well. I felt like writing something quite dark. I think that was it. Then, so Delilah now trending seems to be, in my mind, the kind of the combination of the two previous books. For the audience, a bit of context, um, the book is about a young girl who is pushed off the balcony by someone who wants to be head girl of that year. And so it's kind of a whodunit about kids for adults, which is a, a, a very impressive feat to have um, made so realistic because um, the chapters are interspersed with the child who's done its voice. And Pam, I'm interested to know how you channeled that. Were you channeling parts of yourself, parts of your childhood experience, or maybe just your experience as a parent or observing the world in which those kids were existing? Well, I think it, you know, it obviously was sort of my total amazement at some of the nonsense that goes on in private schools. So I was observing stuff. I mean, it was also very convenient that I had children of that age. I'm used to having to write from different age groups and points of view as a screenwriter. And then, of course, I just made my daughter beta read it for me. So I took out all the sex bits and 
yeah. And then she was my beta reader and she sort of corrected me if she said something was, you know, a kid wouldn't say that, whatever. And I actually still make her do that now. We've got a 16-year-old in the one show I'm writing on and I make her read all my scenes for that to give me the lingo and um, whatever. And And the other thing I find enormously helpful in terms of, and I think this is a great tip for writers, is um, Twitter. I find you can pick up a lot of stuff from that. Um, and social media generally, it, it does it does help you to get the sort of lingo and, and also the rhythm of how people speak. And I found that enormously helpful as well. And also fabulous for procrastination. <laughs> it's research. <laughs> all research. <laughs> That's amazing. And what strikes me with all three of the books is just how, and this is, I'm sure, linked to your screenwriting experience, but how they all, you can kind of see them playing out as films or as series. And where you would ideally, would that be the goal? Or not the goal, would that be something you'd like for your novels? Oh, for sure. I mean, Things Unseen, it's such a slow process. So Things Unseen was optioned in 2018. And then the woman who optioned it split from that company and then we sort of started looking at it on our own and we made a little teaser for it. But, you know, the wheels turn so slowly getting stuff made. You know, it probably will get made, but like, and I think, you you know, you listen to interviews of um, Hollywood filmmakers and they say, oh, you know, it was a 14-year process. And I'm like, mm, totally, it, it takes forever to get these, um, things done. Then somebody else approached me about doing a, a screenplay for Misconception, and I frankly just don't have the time. You know, I would love to, but I, you know, so I'm sure eventually they will get um, made into series. And and I do prefer series to movies because in TV, you know, the, the writer is king, film the director is king. So. For me, probably the series would be better because then I would have more control. Yeah. And, and would you want to be very involved in the process rather than just handing it over? You know, that always, it, it would be nice to be involved in the process, but I would surround myself with a team because also you, you have to kill your darlings and be quite ruthless when you're translating from a book to a screenplay or a TV script or whatever. Um, so you you do need people who aren't as attached and who can say, actually, we don't have the money for this character or this character really isn't necessary or whatever. And I'm actually busy adapting somebody else's book um, into a screenplay. And you do, you, you know, you do need that. You've got to, you've got to trust somebody else to help you with your vision, I think. You know, after you've had your three days salt because they don't love the characters as much as you do. Hi, um, Pam, it's been so good to chat to you. I heartily recommend that everyone watching this go and buy Pam's books or um, then give them five-star reviews on Amazon. Exactly, um, yes. And to like and subscribe to our channels and to give Pam a follow on Twitter because she's hilarious. It's been great to have you all watching today. We are committed as ever in producing content that art and literary lovers alike will be able to enjoy. 
uh, online and we look forward to seeing you for the next one. Thanks for chatting, Pam. Thank you.